are some people that make their work just another thing they have to do. And there are those that make their work something that they want to do. Welcome to Working on Purpose with your host, Elise Cortez. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration from those people who have found deeper meaning and personal connection to their work life. It's beyond 9 to 5. It's Working on Purpose. Now, here is your host, Elise Cortez. Welcome back to the Working on Purpose show. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Elise Cortez, joining you from Dallas, Texas, which is home base for me. This program is all about helping people more meaningfully and productively connect with their work and equipping organizations to do the same for their employees. And it was originally inspired by the meaning and work research I've been doing over the last 15 years and draws from that, along with the consulting work that I do at Insignium, which is a global management consulting firm. I'll get to the program in just a second, but let me thank my media partner and sponsor, Jobbing.com. They are the leading locally focused job board in the nation, and they're dedicated to helping employers find quality talent in their own backyard while giving job seekers control over their search. Thanks, Jobbing.com. Last week, if you weren't with us, we were on the air with Brett Randall, who is the CEO of Soul Man's Barbecue, which is the beloved North Texas-based restaurant chain here. We talked about his unlikely entrance into the restaurant business, his journey to develop his culinary and leadership talents, and how he and his team purposely and daily operate from their carefully crafted culture to focus on service as inspired by their own individual faith. Some of the things that stood out were Brett's ability to infuse his business with his own values through faith and create a culture that really lets him live his purpose through the work that he does and his leadership that he exercises across his 225 employees. Um, it was actually, might I just say at dinner time, a delicious conversation. No, sorry, I couldn't resist. Um, <laughs> with us this week is Dr. Norman Baldwin, who is a professor of political science at the University of Alabama, where he has served as director of graduate programs, undergraduate programs, and the master of public administration program. He is the author of Winning at Following, Secrets to Success and Supporting Roles. He joins us today from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Dr. Baldwin, welcome to Working on Purpose. Uh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I have been looking forward to this conversation. I told you when we first spoke that I haven't had this topic on the air. It's a really important topic to talk about in the world of business today. So to get us right into the content here, before we get into the, what we, what I want to get to in your book and your area of expertise, you know I got to ask, because I'm a meeting and work researcher, why did you pursue a career in education? Well, in all seriousness, I had a couple jobs that paid well, but I was bored in them. <laughs> My father was a professor, and I took a look at his job and thought, you know, he really does some interesting things. And uh, as a consequence, I kind of followed in his footsteps. He was actually a microbiologist, and I was not good with my hands in the laboratory, so I headed to a different side of campus to pursue the social sciences and political science in particular. Okay, so I love the fact that, you know, what you even just said, you actually left well -paying, perfectly well-paying jobs to do this kind of work. I think that is just fantastic. And, and since I do, in fact, I speak on this topic, the importance of being able to work from whatever, whatever gets you up in the morning and gives you a sense of purpose. I just really applaud that. I didn't ask you that before, so I'm glad I asked it this time. Um, Okay, so the content, Dr. Dr. Baldwin, you know, I, I think it's really interesting when you talk about the work that you've been doing around your research. And the first thing that you say is, leaders get all the glory. Why do you suppose that is? 
Well, I think it's easier to understand that leaders are, are allowing organizations to perform at high levels or attributed to the success of an organization. And and I, we have this real romance with leadership, and it's much easier to understand that there's some great leader that brought about an outstanding outcome than to understand something like the complex system of multi-level networks and a myriad of variables in the internal and external organization. Uh, so it's just simpler. Um, but the, we have to remember that even though leaders get all the glory, they also get all the, uh, the blame. And so it, it cuts both ways with the leaders. That is so true. And, you know, after we first spoke about this and I knew you were going to come on the show, I really began paying more attention to the work that we do as management consultants because we do do a lot of work with leaders. But, of course, the only way that work gets done is is through the people who support up into to execute their mission. So I just really felt like this was such a an important topic that doesn't get discussed enough. Yeah. I'd say the other thing that, that strikes me about leadership is we tend to remember extreme behavior, extreme good behavior, and extreme bad behavior. And so we're always reading about these incredibly successful coaches, for example, like Nick Saban at the University of Alabama, uh, and, of course, there are the people in the private sector that are so outstanding, like Bill Gates, um, that, uh, you know, so many leaders, I mean, there's just, there are millions of leaders out there that are in between the extremes are really bad and, and really outstanding that we really never hear about. Uh, so, yeah, it's the, the few really outstanding leaders that, that get all the glory. And then there's kind of the middle that doesn't get as much attention, or they probably do... Uh, get more attention and, uh, and get more attributed to their behavior than at least what we would ascribe to them as people who are into followership and what subordinates really bring to the organization. Mm-hmm. Dependably, right? Um, so I, I'm really, really interested in, and I generally almost ask all of my authors who come on my show this question about why they wrote the book. Your book is beautiful. I'm looking at it right here. You've created a beautiful uh, cover jacket and the contents are, are quite compelling, but I know how much work it takes to write a book. So why did you write it? Well, um, my father was an interesting character. I always thought that he should be a, a dean or a university vice president or a, a, a university president. And uh, he just never had any interest. He was extremely well-rounded, dealt with people beautifully, had great values, uh, well-read, could relate to all sorts of people, but he had no desire whatsoever to climb the hierarchy in the university system. Uh, then in my experience as a, as a, in a leadership role in the university system, it was much more stressful than I thought it'd ever be. I was the uh, president of the faculty senate at the University of Alabama, and as a consequence, I was accountable to uh, 1,100 faculty members. Uh, I had to lead a 50-member faculty senate and a 17-member uh, steering committee. And I tell you, it was just a lot of pressure. It seemed like all I did all day long was screen email. I was kind of a clearinghouse. I'd send people to places where they should have started instead of starting with me, and all I did was field complaints all day long. <laughs> and it wasn't until the end of the work day when the email quit coming in that I could really get anything done that had anything of substantive significance in the sense of new policies and programs. And it was just a much more difficult job than I ever anticipated. And I thought, you know what, (laughs) 
I don't think I'm going to stick around to do this much longer. So I did one term and, uh, and was gone. And my wife was actually quite pleased that it was over with. <laughs> so I was <laughs> kind of one um, a bit crabby that year that I led the faculty senate. That is but such important also, context. You know, you read academically, and you find people that are kind of kindred spirits, and there's a small group of us that are academics that are really into this topic. And uh, the, the other thing is kind of interesting. I, I do simple, I make casual observations and ask questions like to my students, and uh, here I am teaching classes and how to lead, manage, and organize people for public service, and I ask my students, well, how many of you want to be leaders? And when the hands go up, let's say you have a class of 45 students, there may be a half dozen people that want to be leaders, yet the entire courses or much of the course is focused on how to lead people. <laughs> Bit so, of a disconnect, and, yes. Yeah, and, and I realize that I'm really kind of missing the boat in terms of what these kids need, and especially knowing that they're going uh, out into a work environment and they're going to be the lowest followers on the totem pole, that they really needed some skills and how to become a great follower. And I know I want to I want to get into that and in, in, into the after the break here because I want to get really really up close and personal with that information. Uh, um, but bef- but first I want to help our listeners understand that your book is based on research. So yeah. how did you do the research and what's the general gist of of what you found? Well, the research is just a matter of digging deep into what's already out there, and I just gathered as many uh, quantitative quantitative studies as possible and found as many qualitative studies as possible on what the ideal traits of of followers were. Um, But then basically, you know, it's not enough to know what the ideal traits of followers are. What brings followers job satisfaction? What brings them dissatisfaction? What are the best jobs and the worst jobs for followers? So it's just a matter of lots and lots of library work, pulling, you know, just hundreds and hundreds of articles together and uh, summarizing that information. So uh, it, uh, I've, I've done a lot of quantitative research myself, but this is just a matter of pulling together a body of research that nobody else has really pulled together quite the way I have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I won't say much about this, but I just want to chime in because I've really approached my research from a qualitative vantage point to discover how people connect with work. And I didn't separate it according to individual contributors or followers like you're talking about, but certainly can see that there are certain things like, you know, cognitive challenge that's really important for some, relationship and social connection to others. And and these are not at all related to leadership. It's related to the actual, what they're actually doing on a, on a day-to-day basis. And so I'm sure we could talk ad nauseum about this, but um, <laughs> just <laughs> fascinating well, that you have kind of looked at it differently. talking about this stuff, so uh, you're visiting with the right guy. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I'm, I like my company. like my company. Um well, one of the other things that we talked about, as you, as most of my listeners probably know, is I'd like to have a, a preliminary conversation with my guests before we get on the air so we can chat about what it is that you really want to talk about in relation to my topic. And you said something interesting that I want to bring out for our listeners. You said, it's not enough just to please the boss when it comes down to followership and individual contribution. Why not? Well, basically... Uh, 
if you can please the boss and be totally miserable, you can hate the boss, you can hate your coworkers, you can hate the nature of your work, you can hate the nature of the culture and climate of your organization. So, you know, what are you really getting out of pleasing the boss if you're miserable? So really almost two-thirds of the book that I've written is about how to become a satisfied follower, uh, how to avoid or, uh, dissatisfying aspects of, of organizations that we know from research. And, and it's also about uh, essentially jobs that followers will really like based on the research. And uh, in addition, I, the book also talks about how to deal with common problems that followers experience, such as bullying bosses and sexual harassers and micromanagers, etc. So, yeah, I, um, as an academic, for whatever reason, it, to me, I, I'm part of a kind of a cadre of, of organization theorists that believe that work should be self-fulfilling, should allow us to self-actualize, should be meaningful. And so it's not all about cracking the whip all the time so we're the most productive organization in, in the region or state or whatever, but essentially not only we're a productive organization, but we're an organization where people really love going to work because they love their jobs, they love the climate, they love their bosses and colleagues. Well, again, kindred spirits here, Dr. Baldwin. I, I, I really believe in the importance of finding fulfilling work, too, and also very much believe that work can be very much a way to self-actualize. And, of course, I've learned that's not true. for Not everybody wants that, but it can be that. And um, I could, could not agree more. It's trying to find a place where you can actually be who you are and feel fulfilled by that and, and happy about your contribution is huge, huge, oh, whether absolutely. you're a leader or not. Yeah. There's some interesting research uh, that exists that came out of MIT that basically shows that you can give people jobs outside of their work through civic organizations, all, and they will work much harder <laughs> than they'll actually work on their real job when they're doing something that is meaningful, that makes a difference. No uh, question. Get no pay whatsoever, and yet mm -hmm. they'll just uh, work their heart out uh, for a worthy cause and meaningful work. Oh, I have contributed countless hours of my life, years of my life, doing community service leadership roles and for no pay. I completely yeah. get that. Yeah. And well, it, you, for, you say on it, it doesn't make much sense uh, because we've so oftentimes uh, been misled by thinking that people are motivated by money. And I've, I've spent an entire career trying to convince students that people aren't just motivated by money. Uh, that they're motivated by intrinsically satisfying work. And one of the sayings I use in class is, what you want to do is what, make work as much like play as possible. Uh -huh. And that doesn't mean you don't hold the people accountable for getting the job done, um, but you let them do it in a way where they'll have fun and true enjoyment and delight and can find meaning in the work. You know what, Dr. Baldwin, just last night I was speaking to a group of women about leadership development, and I asked them something about where do we, what do you find, how do you find value or uh, meaning in your work, and a bunch of things went up, you know, what, what does it mean to be fulfilled, and they think something like passion and impact, contribution and uh, uh, connection, all these kinds of things, and not once did anybody in that room of about 85 people say money. Yeah. Not once. Well, now, what yeah. is actually interesting is after spending uh, like three-quarters of a semester teaching students that money's not everything, what you actually, the research actually shows is that 
you can reintroduce money and it doesn't hurt intrinsic motivation and that actually added on to meaningful work and social recognition and feedback and all money helps. But it, it, we shouldn't be looking at it as the primary motivator. Uh, and what's very interesting about the research is that uh, when people throw money at progressively more cognitive, difficult tasks, people perform worse. Mm-hmm. I've seen people that same. I've best seen that same when you're throwing money at them to do simple tasks. They perform worse when you're throwing money at them to perform complex tasks. Mm, I it's think that's a, incredibly it's a fascinating. fascinating. Finding. It is. <laughs> Um, and on that note, Dr. Baldwin, it's already t- it's already time for our first break. It goes so fast. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the air with Dr. Norman Baldwin, who is the professor of political science at the University of Alabama. He's the author of Winning at Following, Secrets to Success and Supporting Roles. He joins us today from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. We've been talking a bit about what he's, what he's been researching around followership and why. After the break, we're going to get into the nitty-gritty details of some of the qualities that employers are seeking when looking for followers and how to cultivate that in them. Stay with us. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us, and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just joining us, my guest is Dr. Norman Baldwin, who is Professor of Political Science at the University of Alabama, where he has served as Director of Graduate Programs, Undergraduate Programs, and the Master of Public Administration Program. He's the author of Winning at Following, Secrets to Success and Supporting Roles. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. Okay, so getting us right into the content of of the follower piece what i want to start with here for this segment if we can dr baldwin for those people out there who are maybe thinking of themselves but but maybe i should be a leader i'm supposed to strive to be a leader isn't that whatever where everybody is supposed to get to in their career what are the advantages of pursuing a career without being a leader 
Well, I think the main thing is, is that, gosh, so many low-level jobs, even though they appear low-level, are really the most meaningful. Uh, it's just like, would you rather be on the air or be running the radio station? And that, <laughs> would I rather be running the university or being in the classroom? I like to deal with classroom students. My father was a microbiologist who wanted to be in the lab. He didn't want to be a dean or department chair. Uh, and I think he can go through every occupation. A physician wants to be working with patients. He doesn't want to be or she doesn't want to be running a hospital. It's just much more meaningful oftentimes working directly with clients. So the other thing is that uh, I, I laugh about is that when you are a follower, you don't have all the ugly responsibilities that a leader has, in particular having to give people uh, essentially uh, bad performance evaluations or good ones that aren't good enough for the, from the perspective of your employees, having to give people assignments they don't want, denying them pay raises, denying them promotions, having to fire people. You don't have to deal with any of that when you're not a leader. Um, and the truth of the matter is you can actually be an informal leader, have a lot of power because you are, in fact, an expert and exercise good judgment and know how to work well with people. You can be the informal leader and be calling all the shots and avoiding all those ugly responsibilities of leadership. So. You are reminding me, Dr. Baldwin, um, I, over the years I've done a lot of leadership development work um, with executives and directors and managers, et cetera. And I remember so distinctly I was doing, at the time it was, uh, I was doing a, a strengths finder workshop developing culture and leadership in a, in a, in a, in a, a technical team. And we were talking about, you know, the stuff that really juices you up, that lights you up. You know, what is it that really brings you alive? And he, I saw him sit in the back of the room, and I saw his eyes kind of get kind of big. And I said to I didn't, I called his name out and said, hey, what's going on for you? I can see it on your face. What's happening? He said, oh, my gosh, I've really made the realization that I've been spending all these years cultivating my leadership career, and I don't want to do that. What I love is the technical right. stuff, right? I want to be there. I want to be in the nitty-gritty of the of the data and the architecture. That's what turns me on. And yeah. I said, um, I'm happy and for you that you've discovered that for yourself. <laughs> you know, but to your point, right? To your point, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, it's interesting. Uh, my nephew coaches with the Dallas Cowboys. He's a receiver coach, and he is a leader in the sense over the receivers, but he was a former head coach, and uh, he enjoyed being a head coach. But when uh, I have interviewed him and asked him about his responsibilities, oh, my God, when you're a head coach with a, a, a major Division One team, all the people that are barking at you all the time and all the scrutiny that you have from the contemporary media – makes the job just unbelievably demanding. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some people do really well as a head coach or a CEO, having very diverse interests and liking to work day and night and not worrying about what's happening on social media. And other people just don't have that diverse set of interests and don't respond as well to the diverse types of pressures that leaders have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, another thing that was quite interesting to me, uh, kind of it's related to this conversation tan tangentially that I thought was interesting and certainly wanted to share with our listeners is you started to talk about how society seems to usher people away from certain jobs. That, And I know you've got a perspective about, about why this happens and kind of the effect that it has on people. Um, so what kind of jobs are seen as desirable? And what aren't? Well, it's, just, it's interesting to pull the research together. I, I had no idea, for example, that certain jobs like an actuary and a dental hygienist 
and a pharmacist are, are really very good jobs for people in the sense that the work is interesting, it pays well, the hours are good, you don't have to travel. <laughs> uh, and uh, the thing that's also fascinating is that, uh, to me, the very top-rated jobs all tend to be moderately technical and again, these are jobs that pay well, that are interesting work, that have decent hours, et cetera. And uh, engineering jobs, for example, are consistently ranked extremely high. Jobs as financial advisors and financial planners are, are uh, basically rated highly, as are jobs as computer systems analysts. And what's interesting is that uh, these are historically kind of male-dominant jobs, and it's unfortunate that historically women have not been socialized to go into these different occupations that are technical in nature. And, and I think it's just one of the great things about the book is to reveal uh, what these leading jobs are and hopefully that there is a, a, uh, women are reading the book and realizing that maybe I ought to take a look at being an engineer. And after doing the research, I can tell you that I never thought of being an engineer. I never thought of being a financial planner. And I wish I would have taken a course or two to expose me to these areas that turn out to be terrific jobs that, on the surface, I didn't think would be that great. And, of course, I would never think of being an actuary. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I'm curious now, even though I've already had a career. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a 14-year-old daughter, so I am keenly, keenly interested in ensuring that she gets the full breadth of possibility presented to her as, as, as options and that it isn't segregated and sorted by gender tradition, et cetera. So I'm, I completely opt into what you're talking about, too. Let's just look at all the options and see where, where things land. And I do do a lot of work. Um, with women's leadership groups, many of which are technical, and they are, yeah. you know, they're kind of their own camp, their own breed. Yeah. Well, I hope this book, I hope the book is, is essentially read by women. I, uh, the first people that I got to endorse the book were uh, the first female president of the University of Alabama uh, and the first uh, and only female chief justice of the Alabama Supreme Court. And you know, you, you kind of get a quick look over the book, and, you know, hopefully people turn to the back and say, aha, <laughs> maybe mm -hmm, this is a mm -hmm. book that women will appreciate, and I, I certainly am keeping my fingers crossed that way. Um, but what? the other thing I want to share with you is there's some jobs that on the surface are very sexy that actually, when you get right down to it, are not that great at jobs for followers. And that is jobs, for example, as a police officer, uh, as a broadcaster, uh, as a newspaper reporter. These are all jobs that, that don't pay well, uh, that oftentimes cause you to work very difficult hours. And uh, something like a police officer, needs to say, is a very dangerous job. And even broadcasting, which you're into, that's a, if you're doing that as a career, that is a... Uh, it can be a very demanding job, and typically broadcasters essentially develop their own news in small markets that don't pay well. They're working uh, evening shifts and late-night shifts and weekends, and there's always somebody that's wanting their job that they have to compete against. <laughs> so but we think of these jobs, especially when we watch jobs about people in, in uh, policing organizations at all. They're all exciting on television, but, again, they're dangerous. They work bad hours, and they don't pay that well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that's a really important thing to call out for listeners. I mean, one, one of the things that I really enjoy is encouraging people to, con if they're not happy doing what they're doing, go look for another way to make it to make a living. There's, you're gonna, you could 
probably working well into your 60s and 70s today because of how long our lifespans are. So if you're miserable in something, there's so yeah. many other options. Absolutely. Mm. Well, and it, 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 it's just interesting. We're, we're kind of seduced, and, and there is probably some sexual socialization that's still going on uh, that allows us to, I, I think, not reach our uh, optimal happiness and contentment at work. Hmm. What do you mean by that? That's, that's well, again, I think that you know we still are uh, have professions that are predominantly uh, dominantly male or female, and I, I think that when there's more gender integration and people are finding their true passion, then uh, you know people are just happier, and that that mm. means that you know men essentially becoming uh, registered nurses and nurse practitioners, and and more women going into the, into the STEM field, science, technology, uh, engineering, etc. I got so. it now. Yes, completely agree with that. Yes, I I am really interested in the notion of androgyny. The idea for me of how I look at that is, you know, what can women learn from men, or how can they become or associate or enjoy what are seen as more traditionally characteristic attributes of men and vice versa, men of women. Because um, I think everybody wins when, when, when you can do that in a way that it celebrates that, permits that. I think it's, it's a good thing for all of us. Yeah. Well, the, the research on women and in, in management organizations and leadership is just fascinating. Absolutely. And the debates there are so intriguing. That, that, that would probably be another good radio show. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I think we should talk again in at least a year. On women in management and leadership is just fascinating. And uh, women are outshowing men oftentimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some really good meta-analyses, big review articles that summarize all the research that show how terrific women are in leadership roles. So, yeah, I can weigh in on that. That was a little bit that. off topic. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I can weigh in on that. We're going to go down a rabbit hole, but I, I'd love to talk more about that as well. But um, yeah. since we are talking about individual contributors and followership, and you you sort of mentioned that you've got a whole chapter in the book about this, um, for the sake of our listeners who might be dealing with this, how can people deal more effectively with a boring boss or a micromanager? Well, the micromanager is a, uh, the one I'd, I'd like to talk mainly about. It, it's interesting. Uh, people have this sense that if you just go to the boss and you have a heart-to-heart conversation about being micromanaged, that, you know, that you'll connect and the uh, micromanaged boss will back off, and that's just not true. When you go and complain to the boss, even civilly and diplomatically, it just makes the micromanager want to micromanage even more so. <laughs> yes. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, I think that one of the key things you need to do in dealing with micromanagers is just like a good parent who anticipates the needs of their children, you anticipate the needs of your boss, uh, and you become an early person. You meet those needs before they're, uh, they're actually articulated to you. And, uh, you know, I think we are all have tendencies to be late, on-time, or early people, and it's a matter of people that are on-time or late becoming early people so that the boss isn't bothering you all the time. Um, but basically, uh, you overcome problems with micromanagers when you behave consistently, perform consistently up to their standards. Uh, so you can't turn in good work one day and then sloppy work the next. But you, uh, when you see the consistency, when the micromanager sees the consistency, then they back off. But there are a lot of, a lot of different things you can do. Quite simple things is when your micromanager does back off, you uh, show appreciation, you reinforce any kind of positive behavior, yep. uh, 
And, uh, yeah, and you don't fight your way to freedom. Uh, sometimes you even have to develop an upfront agreement where uh, you have a, a written understanding with the boss that you're going to check back together, check in every two weeks or once a month or whatever, in contrast to this everyday stuff that micromanagers can get caught up in. Uh, and I hate to say it, but in dealing with all these problematic bosses that I write about, one of the things that I instruct with every one of them is when all else fails, it's important to move on. Yeah. Uh, and that they're just, we have natural followership styles that are sometimes just incompatible with the leadership style of a micromanager or a bullying boss, uh, et cetera. So moving on is clearly always one of the options. You know, one of the things I just was thinking about as you were talking here, Dr. Baldwin, is just today I was doing a, a coaching conversation with uh, a leader that I'm working with, and we were talking about delegation and how, how hard that can be for her because she, she says, you know, I know how I like things, and I feel like it's just easier if I just go do something myself. And I said, yeah, yeah. for you to, to develop your skills, you're going to have to learn how to delegate well and coach and teach people how to do the job that you want them to do and then support them so they can bring up their skills. And probably in the process of doing that, you know, until you gain comfort, you're probably going to be a micromanager. And she said, yeah, I've been a, I've been accused of that. And anyway, so it's interesting when you start talking about this stuff and I start thinking about the work that I do on the other side with leaders, what's happening uh-huh. there. And I love what you're saying about how, how followers can teach and encourage and reinforce the behaviors that they want in their leaders. That's gorgeous. They flatter your way to freedom. <laughs> I wasn't quite going there, but I like that too. Um, okay. <laughs> I like that you have these unexpected pearls that come up from 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 the conversation. Um, one of the other things that you and I talked about on the phone briefly when I was asking you some about some of the things that you really like to talk about, um, you talked about exceptions to research um, and when it comes right. to work, in, et cetera. I, I, in talking about followership, um, I'm passing on essentially what most of the research is saying, but that doesn't mean that any one individual is an exception. And I I write in my book about how there are certain people that they are meant to be lawyers. I think for most people who go on to law, for a lot of people, not most, a lot of people that go on to law school, they're really not meant to be lawyers, but there are some people who absolutely unequivocally should be a lawyer. Same thing with newspaper reporters. Even though that is ranked dead last as an attractive job, there are people that are ideally fit to be a newspaper reporter. So I always teach that uh, uh, in the absence of complete information, what's your best generalization? And so the book is full of the generalizations, but when you have complete information, you can break all the rules or go against what the empirical research says. Mm-hmm. Got it. That's so important, right? Because what, what we would not want to do on this show is we would, would not want to leave those listeners that are like, but I do want to be a newspaper reporter thinking that they shouldn't pursue that. So important. Oh, absolutely they need to pursue it. Uh, it's interesting. When my nephew who coaches with the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, he basically got a nice buyout as a head coach at a university, and he didn't have to work another day of his life. However, uh, he loves coaching. And at the moment he could get another coaching job, he was, he was back in it. Um, he was meant to be a coach, and even though it was a very, it's a very hard job, it's perfect for him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I get that. It's a beautiful thing when people find the work that they really are uh, supposed to be doing, suited to do. It's so beautiful. Yeah. 
for everybody, for everybody, for them and for everybody that they interact with, their families, their communities, the people they work with, everybody wins. Right. Well, and it's interesting to ask students and people what motivates them. And the thing that's interesting, they always think that something hard motivates them. I said, well, think about when you're doing something you really enjoy and you're putting in all sorts of hours and going to bed late because you can't put something down. <laughs> so that's how we want work to be. Work as much like your play as possible. And I think, and I've taught this forever, is that so many of the problems of organizations are solved just by hiring the right person. Uh, and I, I don't know what the percentage would be, but I'd say you know, 89% of problems are solved when you hire a person that is, that is perfectly suited to the job. They love the job. They're going to work hard because the work is so intrinsically satisfying, exciting, and stimulating and fun. I completely agree with that. I'm 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 right on board. I could I, you and I are speaking the same language. <laughs> it's a good thing. We probably read the same book. <laughs> yeah, we might have read the same book. Yeah, and some of the same books to get to where we both are in terms of our research. But yeah. here we are, already time for another break. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the air with Dr. Norman Baldwin, who is professor of political science at the University of Alabama. He is the author of Winning at Following: Secrets to Success and Supporting Roles. He joins us today from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. After the break, we're going to get into the nitty-gritty details of follower styles and qualities employers seek. Stay with us. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Inspired, encouraged, and connected on our lively, award-winning, healthy living power hour, Star Style. Be the star you are with host and empowerment architect, Cynthia Bryan. Live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Tune in to the Power Party for positive, uplifting, life-changing talk radio. Visit StarStyleRadio.com. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. 
Again, that's one 346 9141 You may also send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us, and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Dr. Norman Baldwin, who is Professor of Political Science at the University of Alabama, where he has served as Director of Graduate Programs, Undergraduate Programs, and the Master of Public Administration Program. He is the author of Winning at Following, Secrets to Success in Supporting Roles. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. So for this last segment here, if we can, Dr. Baldwin, I really want to give our listeners some really good meat from, from your book. So First thing I want to get to is you talk about follower styles in your book. Fascinating. I didn't even consider that. So how many are there, and how would you briefly describe them? Well, there are five different dichotomies. And the dichotomies are, for example, a conformist follower versus an individualistic follower, an active follower versus a more passive follower. We've got followers that are also very pragmatic versus those that are kind of dreamers uh, or are less practical. And then we have followers that are uh, essentially very self-oriented versus altruistic. So I think, did I leave, get all those? I guess they're, yeah, that's about 10. Uh, yeah, active followers and passive followers also. So, and these are, these are the followership styles that recur in the, in the research uh, and in the qualitative uh, types of research also. So, and, and most wow. of them are fairly self-explanatory. Um, yeah. And, you know, I hate to say that they're alienated followers and passive followers, but they just are. But one thing I talk about is that certain followers that are passive are really not passive. It's symptomatic of some bad experiences in organizations. Uh, and it, it the same strikes... thing kind of with alienated follower. It, it may be totally symptomatic, but it, in the short run, there are people that are clearly followers that are alienated, not committed to the organization. Mm-hmm. So it strikes me as I'm listening to you talk about those, because I've got I've discovered 15 modes of engagement in relation to how people experience meaning in their work and how it relates to their sense of identity, and they're immutable. So it strikes me that these follower styles are, are probably also immutable, depending on the boss, the work environment. Yes, no, or, or do you have a, do, do, well, do you have I, I, you know, tend? I think you're on to something. I, 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 I still think that um, the passivity and the alienated follower, that, that's probably a symptom, but the question is, uh, have they been alienated and passive for such a long time that we can't do anything about it, we can't change them? But I would say things like being an active follower and uh, a committed follower and a pragmatist uh, and a self-oriented or altruistic, some of those things are, are just part of our personalities, and they're very difficult to change. Uh, they're givens, and we're probably smart in terms of thinking of those being givens uh, up to a certain point, yeah. Mm-hmm. So. <clears throat> Because I certainly know that in my research, I think there are tendencies for people to go to to want to experience a certain mode of engagement. That's what they look for uh, because of their of their personalities, their value sets, what they want from work, et cetera. Uh, but according to the environment they find themselves in, sometimes it, it does change. Well, my big deal in in writing this book is that, uh, you know, I present the ideal qualities of the follower that we'll talk about shortly. Uh, and then I have a chapter on how to change to really aspire to and, and integrate these qualities into your behavior repertoire. Um, but then I go on and say, hey, look, it's, somebody just can't change. 
And yeah. as a consequence, what we want to do is put you in uh, organization cultures and climates and with leadership styles that are compatible with your natural followership style. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we're just trying to get the match right. Yeah. Well, what are those five qualities that employees are looking for in great followers? What are they? Yeah. Uh, There are three, actually, that kind of separate out. uh, And uh, the top one, and these actually surprised me. Before I did the research, I wouldn't have necessarily guessed these. But the number one quality is effective communicator. And here we're talking about, you know, just people communicating in a way that's understandable, that's accurate, that's timely, and not excessive. And the bottom line is, Bosses and organizations are, are, are not wanting followers to be seen and not heard. That's far from the truth, because most superiors want subordinates that are open, that speak up, that offer opinions, and are persuasive. And I also talk about followers who are effective communicators that speak up and shut up and listen. <laughs> yes. But the, other, the second leading quality is, is active. We, people want active followers, not passive followers. They want followers that don't wait for directions. They're proactive, they're participators, they're energetic, they're initiators. And then the third leading quality is interpersonally skillful. And here we're just talking about bosses and, and management loving subordinates who are socially intelligent. Uh, here we're talking about individuals that are diplomatic or tactful, they're friendly, they interact, and they're skilled at building networks. So those are the three leading. Uh, the other two qualities, actually, I thought would have been higher on the list that are part of the top five is being responsible and being a team player. Uh, and it was interesting that uh, I thought I actually had responsible as the number two in my mind, but it actually comes in as fourth and team player as fifth. And then six, actually, if you look at the top half dozen, we're talking about, uh, interestingly enough, uh, followers being flexible and adaptable. So, Okay, so I have never heard of these qualities before for, for followers. They make complete sense to me in the work that I've been doing over the years. Um, how You did mention something about you've got a whole chapter devoted, and obviously we don't have time to hear about the whole chapter, but how can followers at least start to cultivate some of these qualities? Uh, well, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, the chapter's kind of about how you change habits. And uh, first of all, there are all sorts of ways to get the technical information to know how to be uh, essentially a, a more effective communicator, active and personally skillful. And there are junior colleges and universities and colleges that are close by where you can take courses. Uh, and if you can't get to them in terms of accessibility, uh, you can take online courses. And uh, now what you have for absolutely free from the best universities in the country are what are called these MOOCs, Massive Online Open Courses that you can take for absolutely free. And uh, I know when I was in graduate school, I took a course essentially in interpersonal dynamics that really hits on uh, this idea of being interpersonally skillful, and it was life-changing in terms of giving me skills so I wasn't so obnoxious (laughs) in the way I communicated with people and interacted with people. Um, but anyway, so I always encourage people basically to, to pursue the educational opportunities to become more effective communicator and interpersonally dynamic and, and less passive, etc. Um, but then there's just kind of dynamic, other dynamics such as, uh, you know, 
finding the triggers of bad habits that keep you from becoming the ideal follower and, and developing substitute behaviors once you find the triggers that go against, for example, the, the behavior uh, that you're wanting to get rid of and, and the new behavior you're wanting to develop. Uh, but there's, there are a lot of things you do. If you want to be interpersonally skillful and, and more active, you hang around with people that are interpersonally skillful and you learn from them. Uh, you hang around people that are proactive people and effective communicators, etc. But there are, you know, kind of a lot of a lot of different tricks to bring it about to change. And again, I really love the idea of starting with taking a course and learning these skills. That is great. I got to say two things to what you said there, really quick. First, I cannot imagine you being obnoxious. I just can't imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> really well, hard to get my head around. This. Well, that's good. Then my course succeeded back in graduate school. <laughs> yeah, it's just impossible. And I've, you know, I've worked, I've had the privilege of working with really fantastic leaders over the years who told me some similar things. And I look at them today, I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I can't imagine. So clearly, here's the good news for anybody listening, right? We can all learn, we can all change, we can work on these things. Um, the other thing that really strikes me that you're talking about is just how important it is to be able to to work at getting conscious of these kinds of behaviors and tendencies in us, to reveal them to ourselves, because so much of how we live our life is very automated, right? We just have an automated response to things, and we don't think about how we can do something different. And so finding a way to get present to that is the start. Yes, I, I agree with you. Um <clears throat> But again, there are some people that just can't change, and that's why one of the things I talk about in the book is pursuing employment uh, in organizations that are compatible with your personality. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, um, you know, I talk a lot to my students here at Southern Methodist University about opting into the right culture, the kind of job that is just going to let you be you. I mean, you're I, absolutely. I, I do get you, and I kind of misspoke earlier. You're right. Not we can't all change. And and we can change less as we get older. Oftentimes, it seems like. So, I guess I need to be careful about how I say that. Uh, <laughs> we can learn, but there are certain things that are that get really hard to change in us. Right. Absolutely. Um, I got to ask this question here. I've never heard this before either. And you talk about this in your book too. Um, the notion of havens and hades. What are you getting at there? Well, I, uh, I just have a, a couple chapters on the havens where you fit best and the Hades where you don't fit. Okay. And it's like, uh, I would bet your natural followership style is to be active. Would that be correct? You're not Completely. a passive person. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid not, no. Okay. And for somebody like you who's an active follower, uh, you, for example, would work very well and very under task-oriented leaders and task-oriented cultures and climates, you'd probably love working under a transformational leader and also leaders that are democratic, very oriented towards allowing people to participate. Uh, In turn, uh, you know, you probably wouldn't work very well under an autocratic or an authoritative leader in culture. You probably don't work as well in bureaucratic cultures. Uh, No, correct. so it's just a matter of saying, telling you to steer clear of bureaucracy and autocrats <laughs> yes. and pursue those transformational leaders who have a democratic uh, leadership style also and are very task-oriented. Yeah, that's where I do my best work. Um, well, we're coming really close to the end here, Dr. Baldwin. I want, to, I want to get one more question in here that I want to make sure and ask for our listeners. Um, so what, what can leaders do in today's workforce to more effectively support their followers? These are the people well, they count on that, to execute. 
Yeah, uh, they need. There's just such a wealth of information out there that can tell them how to satisfy their employees, and it's a matter of tapping into that. There are thousands and thousands of findings on what brings employees job satisfaction. There are thousands and thousands of findings on why people turn over, why people are absent from work. Uh, you know, why people are unproductive and unmotivated. And it is so easy to access contemporarily. And these, there are basically these review articles that pull it all together that tell you exactly what to do and what to avoid. And uh, so it's just a matter of exposing yourself to this. Uh, you know, our leaders have to have a learning attitude, and they have to be willing to do things that are different. But in general, I also point my finger to academia. Academia is, in, in the area of management, public administration, business administration, is too oriented towards teaching people to be leaders. Yes, yes. <laughs> you, know, you don't see followership chapters. <laughs> you don't see chapters very often on, on job satisfaction, dissatisfaction, etc. And so we in academia need to start including followership and writing about how you really satisfy your employees instead of telling leaders always, all the time how to lead, how to motivate, how to communicate effectively. All those things are good, uh, but there just needs to be academically a little stronger focus on followership. I completely agree. When you just look at the numbers, you can see there's a lot more followers than there are leaders. So underserved yeah. population, I think. Um, well, here we are at the end. Really quick, I want to thank you, Dr. Baldwin, for coming and joining us. Thank you so much for lending your passion, your perspective. Well, thank you. It's been very enjoyable. And tell us, if you can, quickly for our listeners, how can they contact you? How can they find you online? Okay. I'm at, uh, uh, I've got a website that's uh, nbaldwin.people.ua.edu. Perfect. Uh, and that also can you at that site you can connect to information about the book. Great. Uh, and also my email address is nbaldwin at ua.edu. Perfect. Thank you, Dr. Baldwin. All right, here we are at the end of the hour. So join us next week when we talk with Jared Grossman, who is the co-founder of Muscle Prodigy and a sought-after performance consultant. We'll be talking about the mindset he teaches clients to perform at their best in business and in life, his take on motivation at work, and how to achieve fulfillment in life and work using his eight part process. See you then. Remember that work is at least one third of our life. So let's work on purpose. We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose featuring your host, Elise Cortez, every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, find your life's purpose at work. <laughs>